number of weeks ago, we started our current series, Living Faithfully in a Shifting Culture. This week, we draw to a close a section of that series focused on the life of Elijah. We first saw Elijah in 1 Kings 17, when God called this prophet to a life of speaking the truth of God's word to an unbelieving people. A life that would take Elijah in a circle from seeing God perform a miracle at the Jordan River to what we see now in 2 Kings 2 in just a minute where we see God performing another miracle again at the Jordan River, taking Elijah up in chariots of fire. Thus, a major transition is about to happen here. The infamous troubler of Israel The thorn in Ahab and Jezebel's side, he is about to cause a major shift as he leaves this earthly life, ending his prophetic ministry and handing the mantle of prophet to his protege, Elisha, creating a dramatic shift in the shifting culture of Israel. Yet, even in transition of earthly leadership, God's character, specifically his power, His wisdom, his grace are all on full display here in 2 Kings 2. So today we're going to see God's character. We're going to see how he stays the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So let us join together and see God's character on full display by reading 2 Kings 2, 1 to 22. This is the word of the Lord. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Be still here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. And Elijah said, Lord lives, and as you live, live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elijah and said, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and then to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you, 
before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And you have, had, you have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. As they went and on, talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his clothes and tore them in pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the waters were parted to one side and to the other. And Elijah went over. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them. They said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they seemed to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold, now there is for your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent, therefore, fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was still at Jericho. And he said to them, I die not say to you, do not go. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And when he went to the spring of the water and threw salt in it, Thus, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elijah spoke. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, holy and almighty God, please open our hearts and our minds that we may hear your word proclaimed, so we may live lives that honor and glorify you. Please help us to do this this morning. We pray this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Once in a generation, there is an event that changes everything. An event so large that it usually takes months or usually months or even years after this event ends, people bond over the experiences that they had during this time, during this season. Maybe it's where they were when it happened, 
or how this event created a watershed moment in their lives. We are living in such a moment. The novel coronavirus has changed our lives on a global scale. Our lives have been turned upside down in some way, shape, or form. Who would have thought that for the, we would have spent the last five months working from home or that masks, masks would have gone from being banned in banks and stores to becoming a fashion accessory? Or terms like Zoom meeting would become commonplace or digital classroom would become a common phrase or that the governor would have so many people listening to his tri-weekly press conferences hanging on his every word to see how it would be impacted to their daily lives. Our lives are all in a major transition from what life used to look like to what we are living like now. Maybe small things, maybe big things, but they're all taking, they're all changing our lives. We're take, we are now seeing things that we took for granted being removed. And our worlds may seem to upside down. Now this may cause a lot of us to fear because we usually fear the unknown. Even in the midst of transition, though, we know for a certain that God does not change. As I said before, he is the same yesterday as he is the same today, and he will be the same tomorrow. And we can take comfort in God's unchangeability as well as his other attributes. Like today, the people of Israel, they were about to go through a major transition. Not one not, not one of these things would, would scare them, but this big thing was scary because it was a change not in lifestyle but in leadership. The well-known prophet Elijah, who had, been, who had been looking at the last few months, he is about to be taken into heaven in this passage while he was still living. Now, just to put this in context, this doesn't happen very often in Scripture. This only ever happens one other time, and we see this in Genesis 5.24 when Enoch is taken up into heaven. So this is a very rare event. And the mantle of prophet was passed to his disciple, Elisha, causing a major transition. Who would the people look to to hear the word of the Lord from? Who would they trust? Because Elijah was the one chosen by God to spiritually lead the people. This upcoming shift in leadership was noticed by a group of people known as the sons of the prophets. We've heard them that said a lot in this passage. And we're going to see their names pop up from here on in while we're today. This group was scattered amongst a few different places, like Bethel, where we see them today. And they asked Elijah what was going to happen to his mentor, this prophet Elijah. We see this in verse 3. It says, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And then Elijah and Elisha are traveling to Jericho. And we see this question asked again in verse 5. Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. These men, they know something is up. That Elijah is about to leave. And they're fearful. You can hear it in their words. They are scared of the unknown of change. What will happen when the champion of God, the speaker of his word, is no longer with them? Where will they get the, Lord, the word of the Lord from? Now this fear, it gets even greater when Elijah is taken up into heaven, which we see in verses 11 and 12. 
For while Elisha sees these chariots of fire and these, these horses on fire, fire and Elijah riding on the clouds up into heaven in the whirlwind, these sons of the prophets, they don't see that. All they see is Elijah disappear. Have you ever just seen someone disappear? That, that would be, that'd be a little bit scary. This fear of the unknown creates a massive shift in their lives, similarly to how we are living today. We fear the effects that the virus may get worse. We fear what it's doing to our economy. We fear loss of jobs, health, stability, the loss of loved ones. We fear how it will affect education and friendships. Yet even in the midst of crisis, we see that God has not abandoned us. And we can remember that God is sovereign over all things, even world pandemics. We see in Scripture that the sons of the prophets did not think that God is in control. We see that they, like us, we don't know God de God's detailed plan, but we can know that God is in sovereign control. And that knowledge truly will remove our fear. We see this is important because of the truth of God's sovereignty is a wonderfully explained in Scripture. It's not something that we just, we, just, we just come upon, but we see it plainly in His Word. We see it in the book of Job. Job is an Old Testament follower of God. And when Job's life had a major shift, he loses his family. He loses most of his property, his possessions, his physical well-being. And he had a choice to worship God or to blaspheme God. Job's trust, it wavered, yet it never died. He protested, he questioned, he even cursed the day of his birth. But he clutched tightly to the one possible hope, his trust in God. Job, he cried out for answers, answers to questions that he desperately wanted to know. Why did he have to endure so much suffering, so much sorrow? And finally, God answers him out of the whirlwind. But his answer is not what Job expected. God refused to grant Job a detailed explanation of the reasons for his affliction. God did not disclose his secret counsel to Job. Ultimately, God gave Job an answer as a revelation of himself. It was as if God said to him, I am your answer. Job was not asked to trust in a plan, but in a person. A personal God who is sovereign, who is wise, who is good. It was as if God said to him, learn who I am. And when you know me, you will be able to know enough to handle everything. This is what we must do as well. Learn about who God is. So that we may leap into his arms, trusting him and his character in his acts like Job, and live a life without fear of the unknown future. In our passage this morning, we see three important aspects of God's character that are just important to us today as they were to the people of Israel. That even in a life-altering transition, God's power, His wisdom, and His grace are still alive. And it reminds us that God has not forgotten us. He has not abandoned his creation. Let's take a look, closer look at God's power. For even in transition, God's power, it still reaches us. 
We see this in verse uh, 7 through 15. It is here where we see the goodness as well as his power firsthand. God's power, it's seen throughout Scripture. In his ability to create, like in Genesis 1-1, where he creates the heavens and earth out of nothing. Or in Exodus 14, where he parts the Red Sea in two so that the entire nation of Israel can come across on dry land. And then collapses it on Pharaoh's um, army and his attacking military might. In the New Testament, we see God, specifically Jesus, raise Lazarus from the dead and feed over 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. These are mighty and powerful acts. But in the human mind, we have a, it's sort of a short-sighted apparatus. We usually think of things only in the short term. Or as a sports commentator in my youth was often fond of saying, what have you done for me lately? In verses 7 through 15, God is exercising his mighty power to instruct Israel in an important lesson. That God's power is real. And that it is not tied to a specific time, place, or person. Let's look at the text. Verse 11, says, verse 11 shows us all of this questioning from the sons of the prophets to Elisha about his mentor and the current prophet of the Lord Elisha, or Elijah. God is about to take Elijah into heaven while he is still alive. Now, this is something, as we said, that God had only done once before. And as we see in our passage today, God does so in a spectacular fashion by taking Elijah up in a chariot of fire. This act shows us God's immense power, but also how he wields it. That God wields his power to do as he wishes according to his will. That God is an all-powerful God, that he shows us, uh, and that, that, he should, that this should all cause us to desire to know more about who God is because of, his, because of his character. But before God does this mighty act to show his might, to take Elijah up into the whirlwind, before he does this, he has Elijah do something very important to show us his sovereignty. God has Elijah and Elisha recreate an important journey. This path that he has them take is the same path that Israel took. That when they were led by Moses and Joshua to enter the promised land. He takes them from Bethel and then to Jericho and then he takes them to the Jordan River. He takes them where Israel had victories and where God showed his power and his might. Then God has them go to the River Jordan and crosses it as the Israelites did to enter the promised land in Joshua 3 and 4. He even parts the waters in a similar manner in verse 8. God does both of these acts to show Elisha and the eyes of the sons of the prophets that his power is not tied to a specific time or to a specific place. That God is as powerful back in 1400 B.C., when he parted the river for the first time, to 880 B.C. when he does so again. And he is just as powerful today in 2020. God's power and his might have not faded. He is as strong today as he was back then, and he will be as that strong in the future. God, thankfully, though, unlike people, 
For people age, they get tired and frail and weaker, and sometimes are only a shadow of their former selves. God's strength will never fade. And because of this, he deserves to be worshipped, and he deserves to be obeyed. Now, it's not just that God's power has not lost its potency, but that his power is also still active. God is active all the time. It may not be in big flashy events like we've seen in the life of Elijah, like parting the, parting this Red sea, or parting the Jordan River right here, or when he called down fire from heaven. Yet small acts are no less important. God by his spirit is still renewing and still changing people. He is still bringing people to repentance and to salvation. And he is still keeping people from the evil one. God's power, it may have big high points like Pentecost or the Reformation or the Great Awakening. But his power is just as impactful in the local church here at Harvester as he was in the history of time. Thus, as a famous theologian once said, the God of history is also the God of today. God's power is an important aspect of understanding who he is. And in studying the efficacy of his power, we know him more. Like in verse 14 and 15, we see that God's power is not limited to a specific person. In our passage this morning, we saw that there had been a massive transition, having Elijah no longer be the prophet of the Lord, and instead Elisha taking up his mantle. Transition happens all the time in Scripture. And it takes place over the entirety of time. God raises people up to serve Him, to lead. And then they die, and new people take their place. This is what is happening in this passage. Like Moses passing the mantle on to Joshua, Elijah is passing the torch to Elisha. Yet too often in Scripture, just as we do today, the focus is not on who God is, but rather on His chosen chosen agents themselves. We begin to idolize them. As John Calvin eloquently once said, the heart is uh, is an idol factory. And today we see this in droves. For instance, later in this passage in verses 13 through 18, the sons of the prophets are so focused on following Elijah that they don't fully obey Elisha because they still believe Elijah is their leader. They forget the God who Elijah was serving. Now, it's not bad for us to follow or even admire leaders in the faith, to hear their sermons, to read their books, to follow them on social media. But we must not make idols out of them. For instance, Last week, J.I. Packer, a world-renowned Christian theologian and author, known for his book, The Knowing God, passed away. And there were some impactful and insightful articles that were written about him and his life, as well as some of the important actions that he brought about. And a ton of these these articles, they focus solely on J.I. Packer himself and how he will be missed rather than the God who J.I. Packer served. We are to worship and to point, to, uh, point others to the God of creation, the God of salvation, the God of grace, rather than a charismatic servant of his. 
For God's leaders, they change, yet God's power persists. God uses great leaders to impact our lives and the lives of people around the world. And even for many years after their deaths, that their, um, people's lives are still impacted because their actions, their words, they shape us. Yet it is God who is actually doing the shaping, not those individuals. We must not become so focused on who is leading us that we forget the one who put, put them in charge. God's power, his might, and his sovereignty, they create in us a desire to follow and to obey, which continually shows us God's power is still reaching us, just like it did with Elijah and in Elisha's day. As we further investigate this passage, we see another important aspect of God's character, that even in times of transition, God's wisdom still enlightens us. We see this in verse 15 through 18. Now, God's word, it speaks a lot about wisdom. And one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, which is about wisdom, is Psalm 1. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are life like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." This passage, it shows us that a wise person knows the word of the Lord, and he delights in his law. And they meditate on the word, and they seek the Lord's wisdom. In the account of Elisha this morning, we see the need to seek the Lord's wisdom and how it enlightens us. In verse 15, 50 of the sons of the prophets, the ones who saw Elisha, or saw Elijah disappear, but they didn't see, as I said before, they didn't see him where he was going. Now, in the previous 14 verses, they kept showing up asking questions of Elisha, asking if he knew that Elijah was going to leave, but they didn't know where he was going. And they didn't know for how long he would be gone. After seeing Elijah disappear, they recognize something. That Elisha is now the new prophet of the Lord. And they even esteem him by coming up to meet him. And they even bow before him in respect. Yet in verse 16, they don't recognize that Elisha has the same godly wisdom that Elijah had. So these these 50 sons of the prophets, they go on a, fruit, a fruitless search to find the recently taken up prophet, ignoring the wisdom from God above that God has given Elisha, in which he commands for them to not go on their search. For they have decided that while Elijah, he may be the new prophet of the Lord, but he does not possess the wisdom of God like Elijah did. Rather, he only possesses the power to ask God to display his might. So they trust in their own worldly wisdom. 
leaning on their own understanding and their own knowledge, leaning on their own personal desires, their personal feelings, their personal life experiences. Because in the end, they trust themselves more than God. As a people, we do the same thing. We now see, we, we see people, we, now we see wisdom as important. Yet, just go into a bookstore. As most of you know, I love books. I love reading books. And when I go into a bookstore, I usually see hundreds and hundreds of books on how to be wise, how to make good decisions, how to live, how to spend money wisely. Yet, this type of wisdom only gets us so far. Human wisdom is what we fall back on when things get tough. Human wisdom is what we look for when we want to get our own way. And human wisdom is what the sons of the prophets had. They could only go as far as their eyes would let them see. Yet there is another type of wisdom. Wisdom from the Lord. Wisdom is important. We saw this in Psalm 1. We also saw how we can attain this wisdom. We can attain this wisdom when we seek the Lord where He is found. When we read His Word. When we study His Word. When we meditate on it like a cow methodically chewing its cud over and over and over again. Yet usually, for us, for convenience sake, instead of seeing the Lord's wisdom and seeking it, as we are commanded to do, we take the easy route, the route that seems more convenient. We don't study God's word for how we are to live. Instead, we forge our own path, trying to blaze a new trail of thinking. A new way that we think is better, for we know better. And that we are innovative in our worldly wisdom, and that we are smarter than God. But in the end, we realize our wisdom fails, and it is incomparable to God's wisdom. It would be like comparing the strength of a water pistol to that of a waterfall. There is no contest. The waterfall always wins. And even better, God's wisdom is always correct, while our wisdom is flawed. Now, this is not so obvious all the time. Our wisdom looks correct in our eyes, and it can look correct in our culture. But when you take a closer, or when you take a closer look, it is far from God's word, like a cheap knockoff of a top-branded accessory. When we think of an aspect of God's character, wisdom is not usually the one we think of first. We usually think of his power, how he is eternal, or his love. And guess what? This becomes very obvious in our prayer lives. We may ask God to often to show his mighty acts of power, maybe to heal someone. But we don't often ask God to show wisdom to those who need it in their finances. Or ask godly wisdom in how to address injustice. God's wisdom, when our lives are being radically changed, we need this because our lives are in transition. We don't think of this character trait of God because it's not as flashy as the others. But it is no less important. It is just as important as all of the other aspects of God's character. And when we act like the sons of the prophets in this passage, we are pr not practicing God's wisdom. We are practicing man's wisdom. 
because we think our wisdom is superior, and that is very dangerous thinking. And in the end, we will end up like the sons of the prophets, dealing with the consequences of our arrogance, whatever those consequences may be. In our passage today, not only do we see that even in transition, God's power still affects us. Not only do we see that God's wisdom still enlightens us. We see that during times of transition, God's grace, it still excites us. When you are having life-changing events happen right before your eyes, sometimes you may begin to fear, but other times you may become excited. For instance, everyone who is a parent, they know this experience well. While there may be a period of fear before you have your first child or when you're raising them, there's also a sense of excitement that, that your life is about to change in massive ways that you couldn't possibly have comprehended beforehand. Yet this excitement, it's a good thing. And like how becoming a parent is, is life-changing and exciting, so is experiencing God's grace. We see this in verses 19 through 22. After Elisha tells the sons of the prophets not to go on a fruitless search for Elisha. Now, these, the men of Jericho were around, the, were around them, where the sons of the prophets were searching. And they have a problem that they would like Elisha to solve. Verse 19, it tells us that the city of Jericho's water supply was bad. And it made the, the land unable to produce food or for even the inhabitants to have healthy births. And then in verse 20 to 22, God performs a miracle through his new prophet, Elisha, cleansing the water so that not only is it suitable to grow food, but it will make the city's inhabitants be able to have healthy births. This account shows us that God will bestow his loving grace to heal, and to restore those whom he chooses. And if we look at this in historical context, this verse, this passage, makes something even greater come to light, something much deeper. The lengths that God will go to to show his grace. Back in the book of Joshua, in chapter 6, after the city of Jericho is destroyed, which we all know as the walls came tumbling down, verse 26 shows us that there is a warning to anyone who would rebuild this city. And this verse, verse 26, says this, At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son, he shall reap, or he shall set up its gates. For many years, the once powerful walled city had laid in ruins. Nothing had been built there. Yet during the reign of Rehoboam in 1 Kings 16, someone decided it would be a great idea to rebuild this city. And from that point onward, all of the inhabitants of Jericho had troubles, from food to water to children. Yet, this punishment of theirs was for the sinful actions in disobeying God's commands. Yet, while God is just in keeping this, in keeping this judgment upon the people of Jericho for failing to obey his command, he doesn't do so. Instead, when they come before Elijah, God shows them grace. He heals their city. He removes the curse that was upon them. The city that was under the judgment of God received a blessing of grace, a healing grace, a restoring grace, removing the judgment that he placed upon them. 
It wasn't that their plea was so great, but it was God's decision to do so, his decision to shower them with grace. And this is a perfect example of the power of God's grace, like God did for the people of Jericho in saving them from deserved punishment, showing them the grace that they did not deserve for breaking God's law. He does even greater act of grace, not just for the people of Jericho, but for all who call upon the name of the Lord. For as Romans 3.23 shows us, everyone has broken God's law, and everyone deserves the judgment and the wrath of God. We deserve eternal punishment and eternal separation from God in hell for all of eternity. Yet God, in his grace, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, a life that no one else could live, And he died a perfect, sacrificial death on the cross. And then God the Father, raising Jesus up from the dead, defeated death and gives us freedom from sin. This is grace. This grace is for all who call upon the name of the Lord. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This grace that God shows us in our passage this morning, it demonstrates that there is no sin too great that God cannot forgive. No matter how bad you have been, no matter how bad you are, no matter what you have done, no matter the life that you have lived, God's grace forgives all of your actions if you ask for his forgiveness. There is no action that you could have taken that God's grace cannot cover. Does this excite you? Does God's grace, does the good news of the gospel make you excited? I hope so. I know it does for me. When I hear of how God has, been, has brought someone from death to life, from forgive, um, through forgiveness and freedom, it gives me a sense of excitement. You can probably even tell it in my voice. I get so excited I start to talk faster. I start moving more because God's grace excites me. And even though there are a lot of things going on in this world and in our own personal lives, God is still active and his grace is still effective. We must celebrate what God is doing, bringing his people back to him, changing lives with the power of the gospel renewing them from their, sorry, freeing them from their bonds of slavery, renewing their hearts and their minds. When was the last time you celebrated this? That you were truly excited about God's grace being shown? Or that someone has just come to salvation? Or that he is continually renewing someone, changing him into into God's image? I challenge you, look for these events in your life. From salvation to God helping someone overcome a specific sin that is overpowering them. And celebrate God's grace. Praise his name for every act of God's grace is worth celebrating. For he is the one who showed us his love. He is the one who showed us his grace. And in celebration... Don't just be excited, but share the good news of the gospel with others. For this good news, it's too good to be kept silent. It must be shared, for it is life-changing, and it is life-saving. Talk 
to your family. Talk to your friends. Talk to your neighbors. While you're walking side by side with them, have gospel conversations with them. Share the good news of the gospel with them. And in doing so, you are sharing his word, not only um, by your words, but indeed, you are sharing the gospel with them in these ways. Now, so far this morning, we have seen that even in a time of culture shifting, even in a time of life shifting, that we are not to give in to fear of the unknown. Instead, we must rest in the knowledge of God's power. That it's not tied to a specific time, not tied to a specific place, not tied to an individual. We also saw how God's wisdom, it still enlightens us. And how we must seek God's wisdom instead of relying on our own. And we just saw that God's grace must be celebrated and shared with others. Like Elijah, living in a time of transition, life has changed for all of us. Yet no matter the change, God is still the same. His power still affects our daily lives. His sovereign control is still over all things. He is still the wisest of us all. His wisdom is incomparable to our own. He showers grace upon grace to undeserving people. And He continues to work in us and through us for His glory. So we do not need to fear what is going on in our communities around us in our families, in our jobs. Rather, we can trust in the God who is faithful, who always was and always will be faithful. The one true God, our Lord, behold his power, wisdom, and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, holy and almighty God, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for for showing us your sovereignties, Father. We thank you for showing us your power, your wisdom. And Father, we thank you for showering us with grace. For we do not deserve this, Father. But you show us this out of love. Father, please help us to put what we have heard today into action. So it doesn't just become head knowledge, but heart knowledge, Father. And we pray that as we we go out of these doors this afternoon, that we would live as, as a people who know you and a people who proclaim you, Father. Please help us to do this today. In your son Jesus' name, amen. Now, because of the grace that God